so I'm not just on here ranting and raving like a Leaf fan lunatic. Welcome to the Fanalists. We've got an action-packed show today. There's a whole lot of stuff going on in the sports world. So I guess we're going to dive right into it with a big story that happened yesterday. Just want to want to mention it. I'm sure most of our listeners already know, but Tiger Woods, the car accident that he was in, do you want to talk on that a little bit, Brett? I'm honestly a little bit disappointed. You were hearing rumblings that he was going to be back for the Masters, and obviously this is going to put a huge dampering on that he's really close to winning the most majors in professional golf so like I would have liked to have seen him be able to pull that off I I have a feeling this is probably the end of Tiger we haven't got a ton of details on the accident but he's had a great career and he's definitely had some issues but I think it's important to remind everybody that athletes are real people and he's done a lot of things for the sport of golf as far as diversifying it and opening it up to a larger audience. So uh, despite some of his stuff off the greens, I think he's been a, a great ambassador for the sport itself. And I I hope for his sake that he's not done, but it wouldn't surprise me if this is the end of Tiger. Yeah, it wouldn't surprise me either, but I'm not quite ready to write him off yet. So far from what we know, it's a shattered ankle and two broken bones in his leg. That's definitely manageable, especially with the kind of the money that that he has to put into rehab. I think we could see him come back. Whether he will or not, I don't know. But I think there's definitely a possibility that he could still recover from this and come back. Maybe not next year, might be two years down the road. But I don't think he's he's done playing on the PGA Tour. We'll see how much the shattered ankle affects his game because it does when you're playing golf that the twist of the ankle is a key part of the golf swing. So um, we'll see how that affects his game and how he rehabs, but I'm not ready to, to write him off yet. And I don't think that he should be written off as completely out of it just yet until we get a little more information, maybe. Yeah, it's definitely concerning. Like We don't have very many details on how it went down. And, and honestly, for Tiger's sake, I hope it's not going to be like this huge scandal again. Even though he's done some things that aren't super becoming of like a a star and people tend to put these guys on a pedestal, he hasn't really done anything that you don't know someone in your life that has done. Uh, So like as much as I don't know, I would have liked to have seen him avoid those scandals. Some of those things ended up being bigger than they probably would have been or should have been if it was somebody else. I think we all know somebody in our life who've been in in those situations and it it didn't have quite the impact on their life as it had on Tiger. So I hope that he can continue kind of building his legacy and and, uh, push to get that last win so that he can be the leader because I think uh, in many people's minds, he's number one. So why not just put yourself in a position where there's no debate by having the most wins of major tournaments. Yeah, and I think the his his past of scandals instantly made a lot of people think, well, was he drunk behind the wheel? And I'm I'm glad that they've come out to say very quickly that there was no indication of impairment. That makes me feel a little bit better about it too, just because that's career ending if you were driving drunk. 
or impaired in some way. Whereas if it was just a genuine accident, you can, you can definitely come back from that because it is, it's just a, an accident and it's a shitty situation and you're not at fault in any way. No, and uh, you've had some locals step forward and say that, that uh, that is kind of a weird stretch of road for somebody who's not uh, from that area. So I hope we uh, end up finding out that this just happened to be like a, a bad chain of events and that, Nothing really happens as far as this being Tiger's fault and and there being another scandal because I don't think uh, I don't think that's good for him moving forward and and honestly I think it was a good reality check to show that he was a real person uh, the first couple times but at this point it would start to tarnish his his legacy a lot. Yeah, I agree. Uh, so talking about a legacy that might be tarnished we got some brand new news that just broke this morning out of montreal claude julian has been fired as the head coach of montreal kind of a weird weird timing for that it doesn't seem i guess maybe i don't follow montreal as much as like montreal fans do maybe montreal fans would have a different opinion but i don't think montreal like they're not having a bad season it seems weird to fire your head coach when you're just in a bit of a slump right now. What do you think the reason is behind the firing? I would agree that they're like that. It seems a little bit extreme, but you got to remember that I'm pretty sure it's been a five game slump now, or you could at least justify saying that it has been. And it's a shortened season. Five games has a lot more impact than it would in an 82 game season. And maybe there's some things going on behind the scenes. We don't know about. I honestly don't know how they fired Claude Julien. He's been a good coach. He's won a Stanley Cup. He came in and he actually turned that team around quite a bit. When they had limited resources before they got a lot of the players in place they have right now, I just don't know that maybe him and the GM aren't seeing eye to eye on the type of players they're they're bringing in right now. It doesn't make much sense to me, especially because the – Montreal Canadiens have a difficult time finding coaches that are NHL-level coaches that fit their parameters as, uh, as far as being uh, French-speaking and and uh, being able to communicate in both languages. So I'm pretty concerned that they're running out of coaches at the NHL level that they haven't already tried that have the skill set they're looking for to coach the team. That's. I'm curious if Bergevin has looked at maybe what Keith is doing in Toronto and saying, "Well, maybe maybe we bring in a young guy. We maybe, maybe we bring up this guy that's been in our system for a few years and and see what he can do." And that's what they're doing with uh, their interim coach right now, um, Dominic Ducharme. I don't. Uh, he probably has a French pronunciation of the name, but I'm not even going to try it. <laughs> but uh, he's a guy that he's. Quebec-born, Quebec native, coached in the QMJHL. He was the head coach of the Canada junior team in 2017, took them to a silver medal. So he's got some pedigree working with younger guys and, and coming up through the system. So I'm curious to see if maybe they just stick it out with him next year and make him the head coach rather than trying to find somebody new. I guess that'll kind of depend on how the rest of this season goes, but... Um, I'll be curious to to watch that and see how how they adapt to this situation. 
Now, I did hear some rumblings that, like, this is Jared Gallant's opportunity to to uh, be the coach of the Montreal Canadiens. And a lot of people have differing opinions on Jared Gallant. He seems to have a short shelf life for some reason. I, I don't know exactly what that is because some of the times he's left teams or, or been fired, I, I thought the teams were playing well. So I don't know what exactly is going on with Gerard Gallant, but I could see him being a good fit for them. I I also think the ball's in their interim coach's court as far as if you if you coach well and the team performs, maybe they don't go out and look for somebody else. The other candidate they probably should look at, but it probably won't happen because of how his career ended as a player, is Patrick Watt. He had a good stint in Colorado. He's been a good coach. He seems to be a great hockey mind, but I just don't know if he would ever consider returning to Montreal based on how his career ended there as a player. Yeah, I don't know if he would. I think you're right. He would he would be a good fit there. I think he would he would coach the team well, but yeah, I don't know if he would make that call to to come back. No, and I think that that's a huge missed opportunity by the Habs. Obviously, you can't foresee that at the time, but that's something that's come back and been a problem for them. Like, that should be their ideal candidate, and it just doesn't even sound like it's something that is plausible at this point. Yeah. So with Claude Julien, I one of the first thoughts that went through my head after, holy shit, he's been fired, was maybe Seattle just found their new coach. Yeah, honestly, he's a system-style coach, and they're going to have a, a wide array of players. He might be a great fit for them. I don't know that that's an opportunity that he's looking to take at this point in his career, uh, just given his age and his pedigree as a coach in the NHL. But if he's willing to take that opportunity, I think that could be a good fit for him and Seattle as far as being able to step in and implement uh, what he believes in, because it's going to be a clean slate there. He's going to be able to be like, I I want these kind of players, and I, I want to be able to run this kind of system. And they're not going to have a a reason to not let him try. Like, there's going to be tons of players to choose from. So if he can find a way that he can work closely with the GM and uh, really assemble players that are available in the expansion draft that he thinks fit his system and play his type of hockey, which I think is is definitely a thing for him. I would be a great fit. Yeah, I think Seattle would be we would be dumb to not at least make that call and consider trying to bring him in just with the pedigree that he has. I could I could see that working there. Alright, so I guess we'll staying on the vein of hockey. Uh, coming up this weekend we have the start of the Dream Gap Tour coming back. I don't know that they did a tour in 2020 for obvious reasons, but they started in 2019. And it's a really cool women's hockey tour where they go around to different cities around North America and just play a game, do a weekend sort of celebration of women in hockey. It's run through the Professional Women's Hockey Players Association. So you've got some of those big names coming in to, to play in these showcase games just to help move the sport forward. So this weekend, they're actually playing at Madison Square Garden, which is huge because that's the first time that women's professional hockey has ever been played at Madison Square Garden. 
so it's a it's a cool opportunity for some of these women to come out and play the sport they love in a historic arena yeah i'm actually really excited as far as this goes these are the best women in hockey and they've done a, a they've taken a big risk taking time out of their own professional careers to stand up for, for what they believe in as far as equal pay as professional athletes and uh you can't do that if you're a middle of tier player because they'll just replace you with somebody else. And these players have shown that they understood that and they, they stepped up and said, listen, if we're going to have this impact, we need to take a step back and really withhold our talent and, and open people's eyes on what they're missing out on. And I think these quick little showcases really show that there is a product on the ice, especially when it comes to these high-level women's athletes. Most of these are Olympians or future Olympians or have been Olympians at some point in their career. They're the best uh, the game has to offer, and they've taken a step back and uh, for the sake of women in the future in order to bring forward a better environment for women's hockey players in the future. And I think that they don't get enough credit for sacrificing their own careers to do that. You have a a lot of really good players here. It's a shame that more young girls and and boys and everybody involved can't get out and see them because of uh, the COVID restrictions. I think this is a huge opportunity for young girls, especially to see people uh, that they can really relate to excel at a sport at a high level and produce a product that is worth watching. And and I'm disappointed that there won't be able to be a ton of fans to see this and really open the eyes of future young girls who could have that impact in hockey down the road. Yeah. And at least even if there can't be fans in the building this year, um, they are televising it. Like it's going to be on NBC sports. I'm not sure if it's on air in Canada yet. But hopefully it will be because the Professional Women's Hockey Association did just sign a deal a couple of weeks ago with the Maple Leafs to host games in Toronto as well. So I'm hoping that they might be able to bring the Dream Gap Tour up to Toronto and maybe play either at Scotiabank Arena or maybe they set up an outdoor game at BMO Field. Yeah, I'm really excited to to see these players. I think... uh... Uh, especially with the, the chance that there might not be an Olympics this year. You don't get to see uh, these women compete as often as you probably should. And it's always a great rivalry. Uh, most of these people are on one side or the other of the Canada-U.S. rivalry. And I, I think it's great to see them play together and, and build on each other's skills. And this is going to be huge for all these athletes moving forward, uh, just continue to be seen, continue to have your message heard and push forward to allow uh, women in the future to have a fair pay as far as uh, professional women's sports. Yeah, I think this the Dream Gap Tour is really making strides towards that. This year they got sponsored by Secret, which was a million dollar sponsor. And that's the biggest corporate sponsor professional women's hockey has ever gotten so we can see this developing and and they really are making an impact and growing the game yeah i 
I can't, first off, when I heard that, I was super impressed that someone would like that would step up. I hope that you see more and more of that uh, coming in the future. Obviously, uh, there are a lot of brands that could fit. I think you need to see a major sports brand step up and say, you know, we value our women's athletes as much as we value our men's athletes. Like, if you saw Bauer or, or a big hockey company step up and say, you know, we're going to have a big sponsorship and and we're going to continue to support women's sports, it would be a huge message to everyone that, uh, you know, the business world sees this as an opportunity and it would open up the eyes of, of the viewers to realize that this is something that's coming. And uh, if you're one of the people that are going to be negative about it, you, pretty soon you're going to be the minority. Yeah, that you're absolutely right. I think that it's a cause worth fighting for. And it's a cause that these these women have, are dedicating their lives to. And it's it shows. So staying in the vein of hockey showcases, we just got past last weekend the gong show of an outdoor game in Lake Tahoe. This great idea, beautiful landscape, gorgeous placement for this arena. Really cool, cool setup. I loved the idea. And then the sun came out and that ruined the game. And they had to delay the game. It put everything off. It kind of, they had to change broadcast schedules. The players had to rewarm up. They had to completely change everything around. And it was kind of a mess. So that kind of brings up the topic of should we be having outdoor games? And is there value to having outdoor games, especially this year when you can't really have fans there, anyways? So, I'm going to be honest, I'm kind of done with the outdoor game gimmick. I think there's too many of them. I think it's lost some of its momentum because the market has become more saturated. You saw an outdoor game in the World Juniors between Canada and the U.S. a couple of years back. It's it's not as new of a concept anymore. This weekend furthers my point as far as players are being put at risk. There's been... Uh, rumblings that previous outdoor games, there were uh, small agreements between the players that there was going to be less physical contact to avoid injury because of the ice conditions. And honestly, I think the the NHL is showing that by pushing forward, uh, trying to push forward through those really poor ice conditions because of the sun, that they don't really care about the well-being of the athletes. It's all about losing money if if your player gets injured when they go to the Olympics, but it's not about losing money when your player gets injured playing in an outdoor game. I think the All-Star game could be outdoors. It'd be really cool. But honestly, I don't think that you should have games that matter played outside. We've seen them be sloppy. We've seen them. Uh, the goalies have trouble with the weather conditions. I just think that it's kind of a joke. Those points actually matter. And you have players playing in what could be considered unsafe conditions. I don't know how they can continue pushing this forward. I understand it's for the money, but uh, there has to be a better way. Like, I'm not saying that Southern markets or warmer markets should never get the opportunity to play outside, but maybe they should have to play a team in their division that has better conditions for an outdoor rink. I just don't know how you can continue 
moving forward with this when you've seen it impact the game. They need to find a way to do this and have it not be uh, a game that actually matters because as long as the game matters, people are going to play hard and that's going to result in injuries if we continue seeing ice conditions like we saw the last weekend. I love and hate the outdoor games. I get that they maybe shouldn't be for points because it is it, it changes the conditions of the game. But at the same time, rink to rink, there's different ice conditions at every rink. The players are used to dealing with different ice conditions. When, when the sun comes out and it gets unsafe, that's a little different than, yeah, you have to postpone it or cancel it altogether. But I like the idea of doing the outdoor games. I think that it's fun for the fans. It's a cool opportunity for the players. Um, it obviously brings in a lot of money. So I think like next year when fans can come back into these outdoor games, they're going to have even more. I would agree that maybe they've oversaturated the outdoor game market. Like they started with just the winter classic and then very quickly were, okay, well let's do this one and that one and this one. And now there's what six or seven throughout the, the season across the, across the league. And I think that kind of, I like it, but I do see where there are negatives to it. The one thing I, I like the most about it though, is I think, I think for the players, it's something different. It's something fun that they can do. Like even in in any old job, like regular work, work gets monotonous. You're doing the same thing day in, day out. I'm sure hockey players have that same sort of fatigue. Then you come to a game like the outdoor game where it's just a different experience. It's something new. It's something fun. It freshens it up a little bit. So I would imagine the players like it for the most part. I know some of them have, have said they don't like the unsafe ice conditions and goalies have spoken out about how hard it is, but I think that's part of the the fun of an outdoor game is that it's putting a challenge and both teams have the same challenge. So it's still, still like the points are still valuable because both teams are still facing the same amount of difficulty, right? It's not like one team is outdoor and one team is indoor. Both teams have that, that struggle. So I think, I think there's still value in it. And I like to watch them as a fan. I think it's, it's cool, especially like the Lake Tahoe one, I think was super creative. It just kind of, the execution was off. <laughs> they they needed to have better ice cooling systems in place. I think uh, the NHL they just underthought this one. Like they they missed the mark, and I think this one's going to change my opinion on outdoor games in the future. Like they didn't really put much thought into this. If you didn't think about the sun, if you didn't think about the fact that there was going to be high level hockey played on that ice and it was going to clearly take some um, intense competition. I just feel like the NHL is always on this uh, conservative path compared to other pro leagues. And this time they took a risk and they showed that they're not that good at taking risks. They showed that they didn't really think this one through. They are really only money motivated as far as player safety goes. As long as the player gets hurt playing an NHL game, it's all fine and good. I don't I don't know how they can move forward uh, without some big changes to that. Like, if I'm a player, I feel kind of undervalued by the NHL. But isn't that a situation where 
the players association needs to step in and say, Hey, we aren't okay with you doing this. Cause realistically you look at any professional sports league, all sports leagues are money motivated. That's what they are. They're, they're there to make money and be an entertainment entity. Whereas the players association are the ones that have to come in and say, Whoa, rein it in. You need to make sure the players are safe first. And I haven't heard any, any comments from the players association about Lake Tahoe um, I mean, I'll, I'll, to be fair, I haven't searched out those comments, but I haven't seen anything pop up on my feed at all where they've stepped up to say, this wasn't safe. You guys can't do this. You have to do better in the future. And I think that that falls on the players association to do not necessarily the league. They have to work hand in hand. Yeah, you're right. That there is some, there's a ball in the players association's court. I just, I just don't know where this goes as far as in comparison to the Olympics. I, when they say there's no money to be made at the Olympics, that is the biggest lie. Yeah. Because when, when they move forward uh, for different Olympics where they think they could pull fans, like they weren't opted out of the Vancouver Olympics because that was huge and they knew it. And they're not opting out of the upcoming Olympics because they see that as a market that they can can move forward in. So I just don't buy this whole that there's no money to be made and that's why this shouldn't be allowed to happen. And this is where I kind of draw the comparison to the outdoor game. If certain things that make you money are worth the risk, then shouldn't everything that makes you money be worth the risk? I just, if I'm a player... An elite level player in the NHL that can go to the Olympics, and I'm not allowed to go because I could get hurt. But I'm allowed to play in an outdoor game where uh, it's sloppy. We play a totally different version of hockey than we would play indoors, and the ice conditions are poor. I'm having a hard time believing that that you are doing the uh, keeping me out of the Olympics because you care about me or because of other factors such as growth of the game. Yeah, especially when realistically they're, well, with the outdoor games, they're generally holding the outdoor games in markets that don't need hockey growth. They, they're holding them there because they know they could pull in fans there and, and make a bunch of money on it. But I do, I do see your point with the, the risk of injury. But I think that's another place where the league has to, to step up to the plate and say, okay, we want to hold these outdoor games. We think there's value in holding these outdoor games, but we need to do it correctly in the future because then they've, they've done it properly in the past. We've had good, good, safe outdoor games in the past, but this Lake Tahoe game has really tainted that. And I think there's, there's an opportunity for the NHL to learn from this shitty experience and do it better next time. Like they can they can figure out ways yeah. to, to improve on the, the formula. I definitely hope they do. I'm going to be honest. Uh, the Leafs fan and me loved the Winter Classic uh, against Detroit. And it was huge. I really, I really thought it was great. I honestly think the numbers on the Winter Classic are a little bit inflated. A lot of people are home. It's the day after New Year's Eve. Nobody's going out doing anything. Uh, if you're a hockey fan, of course you're going to turn that game on when you're laying on the couch. So 
I just think that some of the numbers as far as outdoor games go are a little bit inflated. I think that you should maybe focus on putting the outdoor games in uh, places where the arena gets sold out all the time so less fans uh, have the opportunity to go uh, because we've been we've been shown multiple times that you can fit more people in a football stadium. You can fit more people in a baseball stadium. I think that's where they did uh, the, the stadium series. So that is a big point that, like, you're allowing more fans to get to the game. You're giving it more of a, a tailgate-type atmosphere. There are parts of it I believe in. I just think that it's it's starting to become a gimmick, and the NHL has a chance to kind of take a step back on that and allow it to become more of a special opportunity. I, I used to get really excited for the Winter Classic, and uh, and it was great. But I'm just starting to find that they've kind of diluted the value of these outdoor games with so many of them. If every team played an outdoor game, I would be less upset about the points. But that's not how we're doing it right now. Yeah, and I I mean, you said it just a a few minutes ago that maybe they should just have the the All-Star game be an outdoor game. And and that's an idea I can get behind, whereas it's just, it's a fun showcase of, the best players that the league has to offer and they play it outside on a rink like the game was originally made or originally played, I should say. Speaking of the All-Star game, I think we should jump into our Eastern Division All-Stars. That sounds like a good idea. So I can start with my offense. I got it pulled up right here. Obviously, uh, I had to do a little more of a deep dive. It's been harder to watch uh, these out-of-division games in Canada this year and see these teams. So a lot of my team is based on their point production of the year. Uh, My top line is Ovi, Crosby, JVR, followed by Marchand, Bergeron, Pasternak. People are going to say that Pasternak hasn't played enough games to be on this team. He's come out of the gates, absolutely flying. And I think it's that's something you got to take into account. And then I go with Panarin, Backstrom, Voracek. And uh, Panarin, again, is one of those guys where he hasn't quite had the, the year that you expected. But I think there's a lot of things going on in New York right now. So uh, that's as to be expected when there's so many off-ice distractions. And then I move forward with Borkstrand, Barzell, and Rust. Honestly, Rust has had a great year on a team that's really struggling. I think that's super important to note. It's difficult to excel on a team that uh, is having a tough year. And nobody really knew who he was coming into his time with the Penguins. And all of a sudden, he's on everybody's fantasy team. And he's a guy that everybody knows. So I have a soft spot for those guys, the -the off-the-radar guys that are making a a great impact in the NHL. So he has a a spot on my team. The same thing with Barzell. Like, he plays on a team that is known for being super defensive, yet he finds a way to uh, put up points offensively fairly consistently. And I think that that can't be given enough appreciation as far as that goes. 
He's a great player. He has a big impact on the ice every time he goes out there. And it's super important to to note that a guy can be so offensive on a team that just doesn't really have those same opportunities that other teams do. Yeah, I agree. So I guess I'll I'll jump into my offensive lines. So our first two lines are actually the same. I've got OV Crosby, JVR, Marshawn Bergeron, Pasternak. So OV and Crosby, I just really want to see them play together. I think it would be fun. They're two highly skilled players. They are generational players of their generation. So they obviously deserve to be on that top line. And then JVR has come out this year and is just having arguably the best year that he's had in his career so far. So I think he deserves that slot on that top line with them. Marshawn Bergeron, Pasternak, you can't deny that those three just have chemistry. They've had chemistry for years in the past. And regardless of Pasternak's early injuries, I think that he's just a great player. I can't say anything negative about Pasternak. So I'd say we'll keep that Boston line together and they'll play great. I've got Panarin, Kuznetsov, and Voracek as my third line. Like you said, I've got the same ideas with Panarin. He's just a great player. I put Kuznetsov in there instead of Backstrom, and that was honestly solely because I don't know the teams that well, and Kuznetsov's on the top line, Backstrom was on the second line, so I put back, or Kuznetsov in there instead. But like you, similar to what you said, I it's it's been tough to actually watch the out-of-division games this year because of blackouts and everything, so we're kind of just going off of, off of stats here. And then Voracek is just, he's, he's Voracek. <laughs> yeah, my... honestly, I can't believe what he's done this year uh, based on uh, how everyone thought he was going to be pushed down the lineup and, and this and that. So that's huge for him to continue to go out there at the age he is and continue to be as consistent as he has been throughout his career. Yeah. So then my, my fourth line is where we differ a little bit. I've got Barzal in the center. Like you said, he's he's an offensive player on a defensive team. He, for the past couple of years, has shown up to be a really, really solid center and a really good offensive force on his team. On his wings, I've got uh, Olafson from, uh, from Buffalo and TJ Oshie. I think Olafson has had a really good year this year on a team that can't seem to make anything happen, and he's still putting up big assist numbers. And then TJ Oshie has just been sort of a, a good player for, for a, f- a few years now. He's not an elite player. He's not a fantastic player, but he's just been a really solid guy no matter where he's played for the past few years. So I, I slotted him in there, but I liked the, your case that you made for Russ, so I would be definitely okay with swapping out Russ in there. Yeah, I actually, I didn't really say it, but I have a similar case for Bjorkstrand. Like, he's putting up points on a very system-based team in Columbus, and and I, I think that that's important to note. Like, a guy who can still have an offensive impact while playing in a system and, and getting minutes from a very system-oriented coach, that's a, that's a huge accomplishment. And I don't think enough people take into account uh, how hard it can be to play within a system and still be a powerful offensive player. Wait, so he plays on Columbus? Yeah. Uh, Columbus isn't in the East, are they? No, you're right. They're in the Central Division. I don't know what I was doing there. Uh, do you want to go into your D? 
Uh, do you want to go into D, or do we want to pick our offense first and then go into defense? We can pick our offense. I think we agree on most of our, our stuff as far as that goes. Third line, I've got Kuznetsov, where you have Backstrom. Who would you who would you put in there? Honestly, Backstrom's having a, having a great year. I was really surprised when I pulled up his numbers. I, I haven't really seen Kuznetsov's numbers. I just know that... Uh, there was a lot of talk when Ovi struggled over the last couple of weeks that uh, Baxter would really kind of carry the offense for Washington, and I, I kind of took that into account. Okay. Yeah, that sounds – that's a good argument then. So let's do Backstrom. Then our fourth line, I guess, do you want to go Olufsen, Barzil, Rust? Yeah, I think Olufsen definitely deserves a, a big nod, actually. You were saying about his – his assist numbers this year, that's a huge development for a guy who who was basically drafted because he has an elite-level shot. So for him to be putting up those numbers, passing the puck, and making things happen for other players, you're really watching him turn into a very well-developed player. Yeah, especially on a team like Buffalo where no one can score. Yeah, I think that's super important to note too is that Buffalo's having a tough time, and and everyone kind of expected them to take a huge step forward this year. So, Well, it doesn't help that Skinner has just taken a nap on the year. I think it's over for Jeff Skinner. He's super streaky, and, and he's never going to break the streak and become an offensive player again because I think he has kind of worn out his welcome as far as getting opportunities to play with good players on their team. So I just find it hard to believe that he's going to, you know, return to his previous form. Yeah. And his contract is too high for any, anyone else to take a risk on him. Yeah. That's a good point too. I, you're not taking that in, and Buffalo isn't going to eat half of it. And even if they eat half of it, I don't know that I want him. No, no, I agree. I think that he's just not worth it. He's not proven that he's worth it, especially this year. All right, let's move on to defense before we get off on too much of a tangent. Uh, so I've got Provorov and McAvoy. I mean, McAvoy has been an all-star this year. Like, he's been a great defenseman. Provorov hasn't had the best year this year so far, but he's, like, points-wise anyways. But I think where he has value is the, the intangibles. He's just a, a solid defenseman. So that's my top pair. My second pair, I've got Ristolainen and Latang. So Ristolainen has been injured for a while. He hasn't gotten much much playtime this year, but he still managed in the in the few games that he had to put up some really solid numbers. Um, so I'm going to slot him into the lineup, and then same with Latang. He's uh, he's got he's had some solid offensive numbers, so I think those two could could do some damage together. And then my third pair, I've got Letty and Carlson. Um, I had a hard time putting Letty in there because he's been streaky in the past and he's not had, he's had some years where he's not great, some years where he's better, but I, he's arguably the Islanders' best defenseman this year. So I slotted him in on that, on that third pair along with Carlson, who is one of the better, one of the best defensemen in the East right now. Yeah, I was actually super impressed with how he's, he's played in the last couple of years. A lot of players who, you know, have like their, their spark and they play they play for a well for a bit and then they kind of fade away where he's been fairly consistent throughout his last couple seasons. 
Yeah, he really has. He's always been one of those players that you gravitate towards in fantasy. So for my D, I'm going to go with our D's pretty close too, actually. Provorov, McAvoy. And I think that uh, you just can't, you can't state enough the impact a guy like Provorov has just being on your side of the ice. He's just an intimidating force of a player. Uh, he's he's great. He, he can contribute on both ends of the ice. You put a guy like that with McAvoy, I just couldn't even imagine the points they would be able to put up. So McAvoy is on the other side. I also have Letty and Carlson. Uh, like you were kind of uh, saying about Letty, he's uh, similar to what we said about Barzell, I guess. He's a player who's still having an offensive impact on a system team, especially from the D zone. And and we both know with Trotz, he wouldn't be out there uh, if he couldn't play on both sides of the ice. So I think it's it's very important to note the kind of impact he's had. And then uh, Carlson, I don't think there's very much of a debate for that. He's, he's just been one of the higher-end offensive defensemen in the past couple of years, and it doesn't look like it's going to slow down anytime soon. And then I'm going to go young on my back end with Ty Smith and Ke'Andre Miller. Uh, like you said earlier, I, I had some Columbus guys on my East Division team, so I'm going to slip Ke'Andre Miller in there just because he's changed the plan in New York. Uh, they, they've, he's really stepped up and, and been taking minutes from a lot of their other defensemen. And I think he, he's playing himself uh, to be an, an important person on their roster. And I think that uh, you got to give him credit for that. And then Ty Smith is having an incredible impact for the New Jersey Devils, even though they are kind of struggling at this point. He's on people's fantasy teams. He's really opened people's eyes about what he can do on both ends of the ice. And I think he's just getting started. So you're going to watch him kind of develop into the defenseman that they need in New Jersey. Damian Severson gets a lot of credit for what he does as being a two-way, but you need some offensive guys on your back end. And uh, with the way things are going right now, I have no doubt in my mind that that guy is going to be Ty Smith. And there's a lot of interesting prospects and players in New Jersey. So uh, when you're thinking about your fantasy team for next year, it might be time to to start not passing on New Jersey players. I think they're bound to take a step forward here really soon. So they're taking a step forward soon. Are they at a point where their players are all-stars this year, though? No, I don't. I I think Ty Smith has a case for being an all-star on that team just because of his effect offensively and his ability uh, to do that on a team that is struggling. But I think there's some other players they need to, to step up to the next stage. So if we were to slot Ty Smith in there, would he, I guess, if we were putting him into what I have, he would replace Letty. Yeah, I don't know if you can make a, a perfect case for that. I think we might have to roll with your defense for the most part. Well, and I'm I'm okay with dropping out uh, Latang too, but we could almost 
slot in. You said Ty Smith is an offensive defenseman. Latang's fairly offensive as well. What if we took out Ristolainen and put in Ty Smith beside Latang? Yeah, I could see that. I I think Ristolainen is one of those guys who who he looks really good, but I'd be interested to see how he'd play on a different team. Like he could either be an all-star or he could be one of those guys that looked okay because of how bad the defense score is in Buffalo. Um, I've been always kind of a fan of Ristolainen, but I'm just not really sure that I believe in it anymore. Uh, Because if all those defensemen they have in Buffalo are are so good and they've been able to add some forwards that are supposedly highly talented. What what is going on there and why why are they such a bad team? Yeah, it's true and there's there's gotta be a weak link somewhere. Alright, so why don't we why don't we put Ty Smith with Latang, <clears throat> but then what if we move them down to the third pairing and then move Letty and Carlson up to the second pairing like what you have? All right, that sounds good to me. Okay. So so our defense if is Provorov, McAvoy, uh Letty Carlson, Ty Smith, and Latang. Yeah. That's pretty I like solid that. defense. Alright, so I think our goalies are just in a different order. Um so do you want to start or do you want me to start? Sure, I can start it. Yeah, I think in the East, there's not a ton of established goalie talent there's a lot of younger goalies in the east that are on their way up like you've got Shostorkin, you've got Georgiev oh who else was there Carter Carter Hart so there's a lot of younger goalies that are are making their way up that could be elite goalies eventually but there's not a lot of goalies that are already elite goalies I think the only goalie right now that you could argue is an elite goalie is Rask so I've got Rask as my number one I've got Varlamov as my number two, because I think that he's just, he's part of why the Islanders have actually been able to stay alive and, and play well this year is because they've got a solid goaltender. And then I've got Blackwood in as number three, because I think that similar to Anderson, where maybe he's not your goalie, but he still deserves the recognition of being on an all-star team. So I actually have Blackwood as my, my number one. Like, honestly, I think the Devils, even though they're on a three-game slide right now, are a lot worse without him. Uh, there's a lot of people saying he might be Team Canada's goalie moving forward in the Olympics with uh, the faltering of price that you've seen recently. And uh, his numbers are really good. He's right up there with the top goalies in the league. He's just on a bad team. So I have him as my number one. And then I have Rask. Because I, I just think it's undeniable what Rask has done over his career. His team is playing well. He's playing well. Now, him and Halak do split a lot of starts. And underlying numbers say that Halak is better. But that's just not true. Halak doesn't play the majority of the games. And he's obviously not playing against the the higher-level teams. So, uh, you could be one of those guys that says stats-wise Halak's better. But... If he was actually better, he'd be their starting goalie. And yeah. I have Varlamov as third because his his stats are undeniable. But over the past couple of years in New York, you've seen that they've been able to salvage so many goalies' careers uh, because of their system. Similar to Bobrovsky in Columbus, 
I just I don't know that I believe in the goaltending necessarily. I more believe in the fact that they don't give up very many high danger chances. And these are NHL level goalies. So when they go to a team like that, they perform at a high level. And Varlamov deserves the all-star nod because he's performing at a high level. But I don't have him as one of my uh, higher ranked goalies on this team because he just hasn't had the hasn't had the impact moving forward. Like he hasn't had the impact when he's been on other teams. He he gets hot and he can be lights out, but he when he's not hot, he you question whether he is an NHL starting goalie at all. And I think that being in New York is really big for him. All right. So are you one hundred percent sold on Blackwood being number one, or is there an argument to make for Rask being number one, Blackwood being number two? Yeah, I can I can get behind that. And I think uh, we talked about it. We're going to run these simulations through on, on franchise or on NHL 21. So it'll probably end up putting the best goalie in the starting position anyway. So you're going to see Rask probably be the starter for – for the East, so I would make a case that he probably is that guy. All right, cool. That uh, I guess that rounds out our our Eastern All Star teams. Then, so we've got Ovechkin, Crosby, JVR, Marchand, Bergeron, Pasternak, Panarin, Backstrom, Voracek, Olafson, Barzol, and Rust. Our defense is Provorov, McAvoy, Letty, and Carlson, and Smith and Latang. And our goaltenders will be Rask, Blackwood, and Varlamov as our third. Again, a pretty solid team. Um, I'll be really excited to see what teams come out on top. Obviously, I hope the North Division comes out on top. But as I've been looking through all of the other divisions, I really don't know. Because like looking at the West with Colorado and Vegas all in one division, that's going to be a powerhouse of a team once we get to the West. So it'll be interesting to see how some of these teams shape up. Let's jump into some uh, Locked In or Left Field. This is Locked In or Left Field. Yeah, I'm actually excited to do this today. We we have some questions that have been on our list for a while that uh, might start to lose relevancy if we don't get after them. So I think it's important to move forward with Locked On or Left Field. I also think it's probably our most fun segment that we have i'm having quite a bit of fun talking about it yeah i'm excited to see if we if we do that uh the hall of fame segment next week i think that one will be a good one as well that'll be a lot of fun to do you mentioned that some of our some of our prompts are getting a little outdated already so i I had to change one of them this morning the the prompt was will montreal maintain their stranglehold on the north division (laughs) so now i've changed that to will Montreal come back from this slump under a new head coach? I think I have, I'm going to put that as a likely, but like a very cautious one, honestly. We're seeing um, the Canadians kind of falter right now, and they just seem to have lost their mojo. At the start of the year, I just felt like they believed they were going to win, and now I don't have that same feeling. When I watch them play, um, 
like I said, it's been pretty easy to watch the Canadian division. So I've seen a lot of Habs games this year. And I really was actually scared of them to start this year. But I'm starting to wonder if they're not going to fall into that same boat as the U.S. at the Olympics a couple of years ago where they built their team to beat Canada and then they never ended up playing Canada in the finals because they didn't get there. <laughs> the Habs have built their team to play in playoffs and now their playoffs are in question. Like Calgary is one of the teams that's sitting outside of the playoff race right now, and I think that they're still a really good team. So the Habs need to step it up right now in order to to be a playoff team, and I hope they do because they're going to be an interesting team to watch in the playoffs. But there are definitely some concerns right now. They're on they're on a three game losing streak, and they've been kind of hot and cold uh, before that. So. In a shortened season, these little lulls can really hurt you. Uh, the Canucks have basically played themselves out of the playoffs already, so I am concerned if I'm a Habs fan and I'm watching them fall through like this. I think I've got it as likely uh, right now. I think that they definitely still have a chance to come back. They're not; they're in a bit of a slump, but it's not like they're they're not still playing with a little bit of heart. And their new coach, or their interim coach actually coached uh, Jonathan Druin in the minors. So he could have an impact in, and come in and really bring Druin's production up more. And that if Druin can start uh, start producing more, maybe that lights a fire under the whole team and the whole team kind of can bring that fire back that they started the season with. Yeah, I, I do believe that they have a, have a chance to be an elite team in the playoffs. So I hope we get the opportunity to see them there. Honestly, let's stick with the Montreal Canadiens. Our next question is going to be whether or not you think um, Bergevin will be in on GM of the year. And I had this as a lock at the early start of the season. He made a lot of moves and the team looked really good. I think uh, if they break out of this streak, it's going to continue to be a lock. Obviously, that's a big asterisk, but I just didn't really see this team as a playoff team uh, last year without the expanded format, and they've proven me wrong. So I think with a, with how much of a hot seat he was in before the bubble to have moved forward in the team like this, and you've seen how well Max Domi's playing compared to how well Josh Anderson is playing. I think he's a lock to be in the conversation for GM of the year, if not win it. I'd say he's he's a lock to be in the conversation, but I, I, I'm i going to give him likely if we're talking to win it. Um, I think he's likely to win it, but I don't guarantee that he's going to win it because we're seeing some other teams that have – also made a few uh, a few moves in the offseason and are coming out pretty strong. Like, I'm looking at Florida this year. They made a few moves in the offseason. They picked a few pieces up. And now they're, what, I think third or fourth in the league. Um, and that's even with a, a bunch of postponed games. So I think Florida's, Florida's looking really good, and there's potential for their GM to, to be in that conversation as well. And especially now with, with Montreal faltering, if they do 
continue to decline, then I think that almost knocks him out of the conversation, even if they if they can't turn this around. And he kind of shot his shot today by firing Julian. Yeah. Yeah, you're probably right about that. So if this doesn't work out, then that kind of might pull his name out of that conversation a little bit. Yeah, that's a good point. So let's I saw I saw this one we we tweeted out earlier this week. I don't know if we got any responses. Maybe you can talk to that, but uh does Joe Thornton play more than one season as a Toronto Maple Leaf? So we didn't get a ton of responses. So I poked around with some people uh, that we um, that I do talk to about the podcast to get some thoughts. So I'm not just on here ranting and raving like a Leaf fan lunatic. And a lot of these same people are saying that similar to Zdeno Chara, Joe Thornton has never been an elite level skater and at least not for a long time. And he's continued to be in the league and have an impact and he's still having an impact. So I, I think it's, it's basically a lock at this point that he plays another season. And I definitely see it being with the Leafs. I mean, he made the jump leaving San Jose. He obviously believes in what's going on in Toronto. You watch his chemistry on the top line it seems to me that Austin Matthews is more excited when when Joe Thornton does something amazing than he is when he does it himself. I think it's a great fit for him. Uh, I think he's getting a little bit of his youth back, being out there with all those young players. So I have it as a lock that he plays another season. Yeah, I've got that as a, as a likely. <clears throat> I think the only thing that is kind of detracting from that being a lock right now is – the injuries we've seen early on. We saw him with the rib, which, I mean, you can't really help that. That could happen to any player. And now he's out with lower body injuries. We haven't, I don't think we've heard what those injuries are yet, but it, it's potential that his age is catching up to him. And yeah, I don't, I don't like to say that because I would love to see him play for another few more years, especially with the Leafs. And like you said, like Matthews just has, Matthews plays with more heart when Thornton is on the ice with him and he gets so excited. He's like a kid at Christmas every time Thornton scores or even when Thornton gets a solid assist or anything, he just gets so excited. So I really hope that he can overcome the injury struggles that he's had early on this season and keep playing for hell, even a couple more years with the Leafs if he can, if he can keep producing. Yeah, I think those are some, that's some pretty solid analysis as far as that goes. Injuries are a little bit concerning, but that that's a big man, and he's fairly old. I think to expect him to play all fifty six games is is pretty uh, unrealistic at this point. But as long as he can have the impact when it counts, I, I'd be more than willing to have him on any team, especially if he's going to sign deals like he signed this year. Before we get too far out of football, I want to. Ask this question about Tom Brady. Do you think Tom Brady will be a coach or be involved in the NFL moving forward when he's finally finished his playing career? Yeah, I'd say that's a lock. I think that uh, a football mind like his that is so smart and tracks the game so well, and it's clear that he's basically a coach already in his quarterback role. Like we've had the coach of the Bucks basically came out and said that that after the uh, the bye week they came back and were listening to what Brady had to say more and he really turned that team around. 
So I, I think that that's a lock that eventually, once his career is over in 10 more years at this rate, he'll, he'll become a coach. Um, and I think that it's a, if he doesn't, it's a missed opportunity for the league. I mean, obviously, if he doesn't want to, then that's up to him. But I think he could be an elite coach in the league. So I actually have this is unlikely. We've just seen a lot of stars uh, try to coach teams, and they have a difficult time understanding uh, less talented, hardworking type players just because they're like, well, why didn't you see that? Why didn't you understand that? You know, that's super simple. But I think that's an elite-level skill that only elite players have. Uh, I feel like I always draw back to hockey, but you look at Wayne Gretzky, as a coach in Arizona, there's a lot of conversations where it sounds like he was saying, you know, how did you not see this pass or how did you not envision this play? Well, players like Tom Brady or Tom Brady for a reason, they see things that other people don't see. And I think sometimes it's hard for an elite player to become a coach because they just don't understand the role type players or the players that are there based on their hard work and not their elite level skill. And I don't know that that'll be the right fit. We've seen some interesting stuff with coaches uh, moving forward as far as, you know, taking more feedback from their elite level players. But I just don't know whether he would want to be involved in something like that. I think a guy like that's so competitive when, when things started to go the wrong way he would just be so frustrated and, and not be able to, you know, have the impact on the game that he could have when he was actually on the field. And I think that's what will keep him away. You could see him doing uh, maybe analysis in the booth or or being an ambassador for the game. But uh, honestly, he's got enough money and he's put enough time into the game. I don't know that he needs to be a coach. And I think that will probably weigh into that factor too. So. Uh, uh, your argument started to sway me a bit, but I think I'm going to leave mine as unlikely. Say, so I got another argument for you there, though. So you compared him to, to Wayne Gretzky. I would say the difference there is that Gretzky essentially was a star from the moment he entered the league. He didn't really have, uh, like, obviously he had growth, but he, he came into the league and was already almost an elite player, whereas Tom Brady didn't. He came into the league and he struggled for his first few years in the league. So he he has that experience of, okay, this is what it takes to work really hard and pull yourself out of maybe not being an elite player. And he really pulled up his bootstraps and made himself an elite player from what could have been nothing. Like he could have just played his career entire career as a mediocre player, but he saw that no, I have this potential and I can, I can make it work. So I think that as a coach, having that knowledge of how, how he turned it around and how you can develop into something great, even if you start from something a little lesser, I think that that is super valuable in a coach. I just, you see people like Andrew Luck in the booth you know, breaking down plays because he understands football and you still don't see him on the field as a coach. And I don't think it's, I don't think it's very 
deniable that he obviously has the mind for it. I just don't know that the guys like that want to have such a passive involvement in the game. Like, there was a lot of jokes when Andrew Luck first stepped into announcing that that he was breaking down plays better than anybody and, you know, predicting things that were going to happen. That's his elite level ability, but I just don't, I don't know if he can do that. I don't know why he wouldn't be a coach. And that kind of makes me think that Brady won't be a coach. All right. But I do, uh, that is a good point that you make that he didn't, he wasn't a star walking in and then he should be able to understand the development of players and, and things like that moving forward. So I guess we'll go from football and let's, let's talk a, a little bit about baseball next week. A little teaser here. We're going to be talking about the Blue Jays and kind of giving our analysis on their offseason and what they've done to, to make this team a significantly better team than last year. So here's the question. Do you think that the Jays have made a good enough team to win the AL East? I'm not saying win the full, the full championship, just the AL East. Can they make it? So I have, I have that as an unlikely uh, just because progression of players isn't linear. So I can see them having a really good season, but there's going to be struggles. They're still young. They're super talented. There's a lot of uh, development that needs to continue to happen. You didn't see them go out and shore up the pitching the way that you thought they might. Now, I, I kind of agree with the fact that they didn't. Like, I, I want them to try to develop what they have in-house. You don't really even know what you have there yet. And uh, those guys need to play in meaningful games in order to develop. And, and we still don't know how the minor league season is going to look uh, moving forward. So I think they made the right move, not going out and getting too much pitching and seeing what they have available to them. Uh, but because of that, I just don't think they have the firepower necessary to win the ALE. Yeah, I've got it as likely. I think that they definitely have a chance to win that AL East. You're right. The pitching is the question. That's like I would have put it. I would have put it as a lock had the pitching been shored up a little more. But like you said, they've got some pitching prospects that could have breakout seasons this year. They brought in a couple of older pitchers that are coming off of maybe weaker seasons, but could definitely turn it around and maybe not have their all-star level seasons again, but be valuable members of that pitching lineup. And I think the other thing too, is when you look around the Eastern conference, the other teams just don't look as good. Like the Jays put a lot more, the Jays brought in a lot more pieces that make them stand out over the rest. I think. Yeah. I I would agree with that, that they did make moves to try to improve. I'm just a little bit unsure. Uh, People are talking like the development of these prospects is they're just guaranteed to be at the next level next year. And and that's not how it works in any sport, especially not how it works in baseball. You can still be a prospect and be uh, 26, 27 in baseball. And a lot of the guys the Blue Jays have are having an impact when they're way younger than that. So it wouldn't surprise me to see them kind of stay at a, a stagnant level for a year and have to, you know, take some lumps and really learn. But I think we're going to see how much leadership George Springer has 
to whether he can help those players become better pros and step up to that next level. Because I think there are a lot of players in the Jays organization that have the talent to go to the next level. Yeah, I think you're right. I think they, I could, I could see that the development taking another year. We've got the the voting for the NBA All Star Game finished last week. We're starting to see the lineups shape up with COVID and with the situation around this game and with. Um, LeBron already speaking out against playing the All-Star game this year. Do you think that players will opt out of the All-Star game this year? Or or will they be able to opt out of the game this year? So I have that as a lock. And I think you've seen it in other sports. They don't have to all opt out. You're just like, oh, I have a lingering injury. I have this. I have that. I think you're going to see some of that. If your team is really competing for a great opportunity to to win this year. You might see players be like, oh, you know, I have a lingering knee injury or a lingering this or that because they want to not take the risks of going to the All-Star game. And honestly, it... It'll be different. I think that uh, there's a lot more weight given to the NBA All-Star Game. A lot more people are, you know, super proud to go, and and that's what they want to be. They've always dreamed of being an All-Star. I find that the NBA is has way more of a connection to their All-Star Game. So I wouldn't be surprised that you see some guys still want to go, especially if it's their – first opportunity, but I could see some guys who have, who have went all uh, pretty consistently decide that they have some sort of injury or something they're nursing that's going to prevent them from going to the All-Star game. And uh, so I don't see it as an entire opt-out, but I do have it as a lock for some people opting out. Yeah, I don't think players are actually allowed to just opt out. I think they're contractually obligated to go, but that, oh yeah, my shoulder's been sore is equivalent to opting out right um and i I think i've got that as a lock um i've got that as a lock as well i think yeah players just aren't excited about it this year and i mean we've seen over the past few years there's been decreased interest in the all-star game like players don't seem to be caring as much about it it's more about the skills competitions than the actual game itself which I mean, I don't understand why they just don't do the skills competitions virtually this year and then just not run the game, just do all of the skills comps. But I don't work for the league, so I can't make that decision. And I guess the league's still that... probably making a whole lot of money on the game. They're letting fans in, so they're definitely going to be making a big buck. But yeah, I think if I'm if I'm a player, I would likely opt out to that. So I've got that as a lock. That's a point I've never heard. I really do. I like the idea of that. Like like you said, you don't work for the league. I don't work for the league. I don't think they're listening to the podcast. I hope they are. But <laughs> that is a good point. You could do the skill. You could do the skills competition virtually. Yeah. You just have rules, and everyone knows. Everyone, most of the guys in the All Star Game have watching the All Star Game their whole lives. They know how this all works. You could have people vote on dunks online. You could have three-point competitions streamed online. I see no reason not to do that. That actually sounds like a great fit, but 
it doesn't seem like it's something that's going to happen. No, but yeah, like every every team in their own practice facility can just set up their own all star setup, right? And then we've got the technology that they could stream, have a big screen, and they could even be watching the other players do their competitions. And it's like you're in the same room; you just can't talk to each other directly. Like we said, they don't listen well, to us. <laughs> Make sure you don't cut that out of the podcast just in case it happens. So I guess... Speaking of the All-Star game, it's kind of a joke that there's no Raptors going to the All-Star game. Yeah, Van Vliet ben definitely Van Vliet should have been pretty out. Not that he needs another chip on his shoulder, but chips on his shoulder tend to make him play at a higher level. We've heard all this bet on yourself, and I'm hoping that that can really push him to the next level yeah and i think like we've seen him push himself to the next level over the past couple of weeks with this push that the raptors have made um what was it i I think i heard that if you ignore the first 10 games of the season the raptors have the best record in the league yeah and uh, honestly you've seen them you've seen them really change their philosophy i one of the things we don't have a lockdown in left field, and I think we're going to have to put it in, is is, uh, is Nurse going to win coach of the year? And then honestly, if he doesn't, it's a joke to me. You've heard people say that other coaches in the league are watching what Nick Nurse does to develop a game plan for teams. They want to know how the Raptors played against such and such team so if they know – what to do moving forward. And I think that that is a huge, huge uh, testament to what Nick Nurse has been able to do this year. Uh, Nick Nurse's coaching tree is just getting bigger and bigger. His assistant coach just got picked up by Minnesota to be their head coach. Uh, you don't normally see that stuff during mid-season, but he uh, let his his assistant coach have the opportunity to uh, be a head coach in the league, and that's how you can really know a good coach in the future is how many people worked with him and then ended up being head coaches. The Belichick coaching tree is is huge, and I think you're – going to see that with Nick Nurse. Yeah, I'll be surprised if we don't. He's he's just a really creative basketball mind. The way he sees the game and the way he plans for games is really, like, I don't want to say it's one of a kind because I'm sure there's other coaches that do it, but he just has a way about him to, to know how, and I, I don't know how much of it is him and how much of it is the team themselves, but just to know how to react. To different situations that face them. I'm actually uh, like I, I hate to say I'm proud of professional athletes, but a lot of teams coming off the start that the Raptors had would have just went through the motions for the rest of the year and kind of thrown in the towel. And you haven't seen that from the Raptors. You've actually seen them consistently play better and better and start to knock off some very strong teams. So I think they deserve some credit. You're watching the revolution of OG Ananobi, who was already a great defensive player, according to his teammates and his coaches, become a real lockdown defender. 
And uh, I think that's huge for him. And uh, the Raptors have him for uh, the next couple of years. So we're going to get to continue to see him develop. And the Raptors have been great at developing players. So I'm excited to see him continue to take steps forward. Yeah, so am I. Like, OG has just taken his game to another level this year. And it's great. And, and a lot of the the younger Raptors really have. Like, Boucher has just continued to step up. We we talked about uh, Boucher, I think it was the first or second episode of the podcast, and talked about how he was planting himself as, as a spark plug on the team where the team was struggling and he could come in and, and make things happen. And I think now we're just seeing that more and more where these younger players are coming off the bench or even just having the opportunity to start the games and push the offense. Chris Boucher is such a great story for the Raptors as well. Like as far as it goes for Canadian basketball, there couldn't be a better place for a guy like that to develop because you're sitting there saying all the Canadian kids watching, I mean, are sitting there saying, you know, this guy didn't have a super linear path to the NBA, but look at him. Uh, he's playing in the NBA. He's having an impact. He's making shots that guys his size don't always make. He's learning to play on both sides of the ball. I honestly, he takes a little more fouls than you'd like to see him take. And he, he might have a little bit of a weight disadvantage for a lot of guys to play his position, but he just competes and finds a way to make it work for him. He's very much a Nick Nurse style player. And I think it's great for Canadian basketball that kids are getting to watch a Canadian player play at the level he's playing. Yeah. And especially a Canadian player that, isn't an all-star and didn't like wasn't like a a first round draft pick like we've got there's been a few Canadian first round draft picks that yeah Canadian players can watch but it's it's got to be empowering to be able to see Canadian guys that have just kind of worked their way through the league and worked their way into systems like this yeah I, I think that this is great for Canadian kids you know keep working keep your head down keep your nose to the grindstone uh, it used to be really hard for Canadian players to to make the NBA if they weren't a highly touted player, and, and now you're seeing that change. Even five years ago, a guy like Chris Boucher probably would have ended up somewhere in Europe. He would have played for Canada in the Olympic qualifiers, and you might have heard about him here and there. But you're really seeing him become a personality for the Raptors because he is Canadian, because he plays in a Canadian market. And because, like, you just – you have to love his story. You have to love his attitude out there. He just – he embodies Canadians very, very well. I feel like the whole team kind of does, even though most of them aren't Canadian. I feel like the entire country looks at that team and feels a sense of pride. And especially this year where, I mean, even we started the season going, uh, what's going on? Like, the, this isn't the team we – we knew and love, and now they've really fought it out. And like you said, they've sort of changed their attitude and changed their game plan and just pushed and pushed and pushed, and now they're pushing themselves into the playoff conversation. 
Yeah, I wanted to get this conversation in case things kind of go the other way again for the Raptors. I don't think they will. I think you've seen the team kind of turn a corner. But I think it's important to kind of acknowledge what they have done while they're still pretty hot. They have a big game tonight that will allow them to, on a back-to-back, that will allow them to kind of continue to be in the 500 conversation. So that's huge for them, and I hope that uh, they can continue doing what they're doing because if they keep progressing this way, they might not have started the year as a playoff contender, but I think there's a lot of playoff contenders that are like, holy, I hope I don't play the Raptors because Nick Nurse is going to coach them to have an opportunity. You might win game one. You might even win game two. But by game five and game six, the Raptors are going to have a plan and they're going to execute. So you better hope that you're more talented than they are. Well, and and what's dangerous about the Raptors too is that they can play the small game, but they also have the players that they can play the big game as well. Like if they need to, they can throw Baines in there and have that big traditional center. Or they can throw a guy like like Boucher in there and have this smaller guy that can play that role but still put up threes when he needs to. Yeah, you've seen an interesting uh, development when Boucher and Baines are on the court at the same time. I think that's been eye-opening opportunity for the Raptors. They kind of, between the two of them, they have the skill sets of an elite center. Like, obviously, that's not ideal. You'd rather just have an elite center. But with what uh, Baines can do as far as, you know, playing the game the right way and making all the little sacrifices and what Boucher can do with his athleticism and size as well as his ability to shoot the three, no matter how many times people tell me, that it's not the prettiest looking three. I don't even care. It goes in. Yeah, he's still at 40%. I don't think, so, like, I don't think he cares either, to be honest. Now, do you think the Raptors are out of the conversation to still try and acquire that, uh, that elite center? I think you're going to hear some conversations in the buyout market as far as them getting one. I don't think, I don't think you're going to see them go and trade for a guy. I did a little bit more of a deep dive on what they would have to do. And honestly, in order to get a guy like Drummond we talked about, they'd have to subtract too many key pieces. Also, one of those pieces would probably have to be Lowry. You're not sending Lowry to Cleveland to rot. Like, that's just not what the Raptors are going to do. And uh, so I have to well, – they're going to be in on their options as far as the bio market. But I just think that buyout players who have elite-level skill or high-level skill tend to go to teams uh, that are guaranteed to be playoff contenders. So I think you're going to have a hard time uh, getting somebody, but I think they're going to be in that conversation. Which is good. I think they still should be in that conversation. I think it wouldn't hurt them to add some pieces at this point in the season or, or later in the season even. Yeah, and I think I think you've seen some guys kind of change their, their game to fit in with the Raptors. Like, 
Bevery, who's a veteran who uh, who's starting to start a little bit with the Raptors, he's really having an impact and really getting into that Raptors type attitude of I'm just going to compete and compete and compete and be relentless until you just can't handle me anymore. And the Raptors have such a good culture that if I'm a guy who's having a tough time reestablishing myself, I would want to go there, honestly. You know that Nick Nurse is going to put you in a position to succeed. I think uh, that was Alex Len's plan at the start of the year until they, they moved on with him, is he thought it was an opportunity to establish himself as an NBA player after being a high pick, and it just didn't work out. But if I was another player who was having a hard time establishing myself or I used to be a high-level player, but I'm kind of faltering right now, I would have my eyes open for an opportunity with the Raptors because they're going to put you in a position to succeed, help you build that confidence back up, and maybe get you back to being a contributing NBA player. Yeah, they really do have that fighting attitude of, ruthlessness the never going to quit and i think that's we've seen that that's why they've come back the way they have this season yeah i i honestly like like i said earlier i i could have seen them just pull the plug and throw in the towel and and just kind of go through the motions of the rest of the season but i don't think that's in the culture of the raptors and in order for the raptors to be competitive being a toronto team in an in American-dominated league, you're going to have to have an identity. And they have an identity. Yeah. And I think the important part is not losing that when you subtract guys. You need Van Vliet to continue to be a leader and show that that's the culture of the Raptors. You need OG to be a leader and continue to perpetuate the culture of the Raptors. And I think you're seeing that. And that's a great sign for the Raptors. And I wonder too, if that culture that the Raptors have managed to cultivate, if come playoff time, that's what some of these elite teams like, or like teams with elite players like the Nets um, might be lacking when they get to the playoffs. Yeah. I, I just, I'm, it's fun watching the Nets. It's like watching an all-star game out there. Yeah. Speaking of all-star games earlier, but I'm not sold on them quite yet. But honestly, uh, it's hard to teach offense. It's not that hard to get a guy to commit to defense. So I like to think that those elite-level players could do that. Speaking of, speaking of the Brooklyn Nets, I want to move into my players of the week for this week. And – uh my player of the week this week is actually James Harden because we were super hard on the Brooklyn Nets when, when they made that trade. So I think it's important to to note what he's been able to do. So Harden led the Brooklyn Nets over the past uh, four games or over the past week. In those four games, they were 4-0. He was averaging 31 points. And he was shooting at a 55% shooting percentage. So that is a huge effort for him. He's also um, 
coming down with a lot of rebounds, averaging around nine rebounds and 10 assists. So a lot of those things are things that people said he couldn't do, wasn't willing to do. So I think uh, it's important to acknowledge that that he's doing those things. Uh, He's trying to finish his career with a championship ring and you're seeing him commit on all sides of the court. And I think a guy like that with the elite level talent that he does have, if he decides to commit to playing both ends of the court, you better watch out. Yeah. So, I mean, talking about Harden's defense, um, we've seen that defense really does win games. And that brings me to my player of the week with the Canadian women's national soccer team. That's, playing the She Believes Cup right now. I wanted to give a a quick update on that. They lost against the States, but then they beat Argentina. But the the key player in their loss and their victory, really, was Stephanie LeBay. She is the goalie that stepped in because the first three minutes of the U.S. game, Sheridan got injured. So the goalie that we highlighted last, last week actually got hurt in the first three minutes. So it's it's been uh, Stephanie LeVay that really stepped up and kept the team in the in both of these games. The, the U.S. game and the Argentina game, nobody scored until the last, I think, five minutes of the game. And that's even with, in the U.S. game, Canada getting 10 shots against that LeVay stopped all of them. Which, I mean, I don't know how, big, how much you know soccer, but to get 10 shots on goal is big. That's a high number. In the Argentina game, Argentina only got three shots on Canada's goal. No, that's huge. I really do. uh, uh, Like, this is kind of opening my eyes to soccer. I love supporting Canadian athletes. So, I've obviously uh, been keeping a close eye. And we were talking about the ability for players to step up and, and highlight themselves. And, unfortunately, that's the only way you can do that as a backup goalie is if somebody comes down, you got to make it impossible for that person to get back into the net when they come back. And that's what she's doing, playing at this elite level. So I think he chose a great player of the week. Yeah, and I think uh, with with LeBay, this is actually a, a resurgence for her. She played net for the team in the 2016 Rio Olympics, and then she was at risk of losing her spot to Kaylin Sheridan. So it's just an opportunity for her to keep pushing to maintain her spot as a potential starting goalie. Yeah, like it, it's tough to be that person and lose your spot. So she's done a great job of uh, earning her spot back and, and really showing that, that it's her position to lose. And uh, that takes a lot of mental strength. So kudos to her and the Canadian team for competing. Yeah, and we'll see, I guess, this afternoon, they the Canadian team plays against Brazil. The podcast won't be out by then, but we'll, we'll know who wins that game by the end of it. If Canada can pull that game out, they have a definite chance of, of winning this tournament, which is huge because this is their first year in the tournament. If, if they can just turn around and, and win it, that would be a great accomplishment for women's soccer in Canada, especially without a lot of their star players. Yeah, yeah that's a great way to end this episode this week. Honestly, uh, we did a lot of talking last week about how we last in a month. Well, 
So it's just had another episode crossed off, and I'm glad we're still doing it. And I, I think we're getting better, and I hope everyone's enjoying. We, we're getting a couple more listens here and there, and uh, we're getting some feedback on Twitter and our other social media. So I hope that uh, that continues. Thanks for listening, and have a great day.